frankly, we're seeing right now with coronavirus, right? When you pull the plug and say no more restaurants and you know, no more this, that, and the other, and toilet paper and whatever else people are hoarding. You take out one little piece of the market and that has a ripple effect through the economy because it's so integrated and, and mm-hmm. interconnected. So that's the story of iPencil. He's like, this, this is really a story of human cooperation and spontaneous order. All these mm-hmm. people across the world working together, people of different faith traditions, cultures, mm-hmm. languages, ethnicities, who don't even know that they're working together on a pencil. And yet the market brings us all together in this common cause there's no pencil president. There's no pencil czar, you know, coordinating the production of pencils, right? It just happens. I love that. Yeah. It just happens. The market brings us together spontaneously. We each are pursuing our own interests and goals. And so I really like that message, not just for right now with coronavirus craziness, but as a father. This is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Connor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I've heard lots about you. And I have to say, for someone who is not a reader, um, I have been engrossed in your kids' books. I'm realizing kids' books are more my style than, than lots regular of pictures, books. right? <laughs> I love pictures, big texts, and words that I can understand. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, we actually had someone on our team, Trevor, who is a huge, huge fan of yours and has gotten all your books for his kids. And we have started gifting your books to some people in our community. And cool. we are a huge fan of your philosophies and, and what you stand for. Um, and then I also, uh, my good friend, Jason Rink, who I just did a workshop with, is a big fan of yours as a friend. So it's an honor to have you on the show. There's a ton that we can talk about. But what I'm hoping to do right now is just unpack a little bit of your story, your origin story and sure. who you are and why you do what you do. And then and we can get into some of your economical views, especially around why kids books, like why did you, why did you go down that route? And I'm excited for this conversation. So yeah, thanks for having me. I'll, I'll share the brief version You know, I was kind of your average kid, uh, average college student. I, in fact, cheated a lot through school because for me, it was like, okay, well, I'm expected to get good grades and I don't like learning what I'm learning right now. And so any shortcut that I could find, I would take. Um, I don't look back on that proudly, but that's kind of the reality of the system that prioritizes, you know, tests and regurgitating material. So I spent my whole education kind of taking those shortcuts and never really being uh, afforded the opportunity to focus on the things that I had an interest in, or no one even tried to cultivate those educational interests. It was all like, you're required to learn this, and then this, and then this. And so I made my way all the way through college, and I graduate, and I now have a job, I'm single, and I've actually got some free time for like the first time in my life, having yeah. you know no homework and no projects and all these deadlines. And so I started reading. And um, one book led to another, and eventually I started going down the path of uh, American history and economics and political philosophy. And it was light material at first, but then I started getting into like heavier and heavier books, and I developed an interest. And it was fun for me because I had time to just pursue whatever I wanted, and I realized, holy cow, like I had missed out on that, you know, all through school. And so um, that particular strain of of um, or pursuit of education led to a bunch of opportunities, started writing books, uh, set up the organization. I I now run a political think tank and uh, did that, am doing that, and taking us to the kids' books maybe in particular, and then I'll throw it back to you. What was interesting is as I started a family and started having kids, what happened was I was spending my day working on all these things, fighting for free markets and defending Mm -hmm. property rights and changing all these laws. And then I would come home 
And my kids would be like, hey, dad, what did you do today? And I'm like, uh, how do I talk about this to a, uh, you yeah, know, that's, a five-year-old? That's super relevant, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And so it just prompted these questions of like, how do you talk to, about that to kids? And so that's what led to these, these kids' books. I love it. And a couple, couple things. I, at first, I was like, yeah, we're not going to get political. But yeah, we, we are going to get political on this, on this uh, podcast. Uh, what do you think right now what's going on? We are literally having a interview during the apocalypse. <laughs> it sometimes feels like that if you go to the grocery store and um, everyone's losing their minds. What are, what are your thoughts as, um, well, first of all, can you give maybe your little overview of what you believe in sure. as it relates to politically? And then what are your thoughts, are, thoughts going on right now with the meltdown that's happening and the government's involvement in it in a, in a scare, in the coronavirus scare? Yeah. Because I've even heard some people uh, like Ben Shapiro say that he's all in favor of it, of government intervention, even though he um, is a is supposedly a, a big libertarian. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts as as it relates to where we're at right now. So so I am uh, unlike Ben Shapiro, an actual libertarian, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like Ben on a lot of stuff. But I the better way to put me is I'm a skeptic. I, I okay. uh, having read a lot of history. I really came to the position that the government lies and takes advantage, lies to and takes advantage of people time and time and time again. I am not at all suggesting that the coronavirus is any kind of hoax or conspiracy. It's a legit virus that's uh, harming and, and killing some people. But what you have to look at in history is the context in which these events happen. So people initially started comparing coronavirus to the flu. And of course, that's not the best comparison because coronavirus does appear to be far more infectious, contagious. However, um, the, the response that the public is happening is way, way disproportionate to the reality of what is happening. And this is the problem that I see in our society, politically, economically. I mean, look what's happening with the stock market and everyone's overreacting and restaurants are getting shut down. People are going to lose their job. The economic impact of all of this is going to way exceed the mm-hmm. damage caused uh, from um, the actual virus. And so to me, what I look at is the historical examples that, that are in abundance of when people have overreacted to something and what the government has done, how they've taken, taken advantage of the situation, the economic havoc that has been wreaked. You know, right now, the Federal Reserve is basically offering unlimited free money to everyone. Right, unlimited quantitative easing, zero percent interest, and yet the stock market continues to plummet. Um, there are some real travesties happening with coronavirus, and people are dying, and that's very unfortunate. Although, again, in context of a lot of the diseases that happen all the time that don't even make the news, yeah. At least as of the time that we're recording, we haven't reached anywhere near you know some of those thresholds yet. Um, and and so the freak out, the response that's happening, I, I just worry that there's going to be a far more significantly negative impact from the long-term economic um, impact of what's happening than anything coronavirus has done. And that's what's unfortunate is that that's within our our control. Um, But it seems like people are apt to uh, react and then overreact to something that they don't understand, they're worried about, which is understandable. It's the human condition. But in the aggregate, I think that poses for us a lot more long-term problems than coronavirus does. So if you had to summarize your political views in one or two minutes, what would that be? Um, So I'd say I'm a a classical liberal, limited government kind of guy who recognizes that, uh, like George Washington said, government like fire is force and, uh, you know, has its role, but an extremely limited one. Uh, We've far exceeded those bounds in our day. And we, I think, need to all um, 
you know, do our part to limit it back to where it should be. That's beautifully said. Um, okay. So, so you're like doing all this stuff. Your kids are saying, Hey dad, like what, like, what are you doing? And you're like, man, like, wouldn't it be amazing to actually take some of these principles that I firmly believe? And by the way, I am also a believer in, in many of the things that you're teaching. Mm. And I just think it's fundamental. Yeah. I was homeschooled and I was grateful for the upbringing that I had. And, and yeah, it's a lot of this stuff is not like news to me and at, actually being into the infinite banking world and helping people just rethink the way that they think about money. We're, I'm very familiar with the creature from Jekyll Island. I'm yeah. very familiar with um, a lot of the problems that banks create. And I'll, I'm also, it, it, I, I, have a, I have a lot of conversations around ROR's standing for return on result. And helping, helping our audience really get clear on what result do they actually want and then do with their time and money in a way that backs that up. And I feel like a lot of people are just listening to other people, giving up total control and then freaking out when those other institutions may not have their best interests and they're, and they're panicking. Yeah. And so what I think would be cool is, do you have a favorite book that you wrote for kids? Because I would love to go through each one of them quickly and talk about the principle. Uh, but do you have any favorites? Uh, because I have not read them all yet, but I do have them all. And so, um, well, I think one of my, well, it's, we have 11 now. What's funny is when we started doing this, this wasn't like a long-term project. This was just kind of a fun little like, yeah, let's create a book and, and that would be fun. And so we started with The Law by Frederick Bostet, which is this amazing short essay written in 1850 talking about what is law, what is justice, what are rights. Uh, very, very helpful essay. You can find it for free online um, or you know, buy a, a cheap copy on Amazon. So we did that one book, but then the response was like, hey, you know, like tons of people were buying it. I remember in, in particular, I was at a conference once selling the book and I get this email notification that I just got a sale and it was someone buying 40 copies and then I scroll down to see the name and it was Ron Paul and his family, former Congressman Ron Paul. And I'm like, okay, there's a market signal. Maybe, maybe we're onto something. And, you know, I was a big Ron Paul fan back in the day. And so that was to me kind of the, the, the market signal of like, no, there's something here. Like there's an idea bigger than just one book. And so we've, we've now got 11 books. We've got three books for teenagers. We've got a card game. We're, you know, we keep doing all these different things. So to your question, favorite book, um, I would say, to me, um, the favorite book that I have is The Tuttle Twins and the Miraculous Pencil. Um, mm. This is based on an essay called I, Pencil by Leonard Reed. And what I like most about the message for, for anyone in your audience not familiar with the original story, I, Pencil, um, it's a very intriguing and short essay where it's an autobiography of a pencil. And, and the pencil says, no one knows how to make me. I'm this simple object. I'm cheap to acquire. People have me in abundance and yet no one knows how to make me. Because if you think of all the different parts of a pencil, the wood, the lead, the lacquer, the rubber, and so on and so forth, um, each of those require experts to make mm -hmm. and people to drive them to you and all sorts of people mm -hmm. involved in the supply chain who themselves rely upon other people who provide them those raw materials that they don't know how to mine and they don't know how to cut down trees and they don't know how to, how to make a chainsaw or, you know, gasoline and all the many, many, many things, which frankly, we're seeing right now with coronavirus, right? When you pull the plug and say no more restaurants and, you know, no more this, that and the other and toilet paper and whatever else people are hoarding, you take out one little piece of the market and that has a ripple effect through the economy because it's so integrated and, and mm -hmm. interconnected. So that's the story of iPencil. He's like, this, this is really a story of human cooperation. 
and spontaneous order. All these mm-hmm. people across the world working together, people of different faith traditions, cultures, mm-hmm. languages, ethnicities, who don't even know that they're working together on a pencil. And yet the market brings us all together in this common cause. There's no pencil president. There's no pencil czar, you know, coordinating the production of pencils, right? It just happens. I love that. It just happens. The market brings us together spontaneously. We each are pursuing our own interests and goals. And so I really like that message, not just for right now with coronavirus craziness, but as a father, what I really liked is we'll sit down for dinner. You know, my wife will put out the meal that she's prepared in our home. And I'll say to my kids, all right, what's, what's the, you know, pedigree chart of dinner? Who all was involved? It's not just mom making dinner and, and, you know, we're grateful for her for doing all that she does. But who are all the different people that mom had to rely upon, right? The farmers and the transportation folks and the grocery store folks and everyone else in the, the chain. And so it, it flips children from having this entitlement mentality of like, oh, what's for dinner? I just want mm-hmm. food and give me, give me, give me to an attitude of gratitude and humility, seeing that how amazing the free market is in being able to respond to everyone's diverse needs in a way mm-hmm. where we're all pursuing our own self-interest, we're all getting what we want, but in the process through the market, we're serving other people to give them what they want so that we can get what we want. I just think it's a beautiful message. I think it's one that really reflects the reality of the world that we live in. And it's something that kids aren't really taught. And um, I, I think it's a message that far more of us, especially adults, could really uh, stand to, to internalize. I love in your book that you you broke down like from one little pencil and you have just these charts of all everything that needs to go into making that pencil. And it's so interesting because it's like, it is such a simple thing. And yet there's no way in the world that any one person could make that. Right. And that's that's perfect example. If you look around in just my studio alone for a fraction of the cost, when you think about it, yeah, I am able to have all these things, and it just sh- it shares with you like it, it's so cool how amazing capitalism is. And you're right, we don't have a president, we don't have a committee, we don't have a someone overseeing all that. That's that's very very profound. I, I'm I'm hoping um, those of you that are listening really really grasp that and see the importance of having communi- communicating with your peers, but your kids. And I, I think this is great. Um, I wish I had this book, by the way. Uh, before I, I actually read Atlas Shrugged. Um, I have a friend of mine who's like, Caleb, I want to do business with you, but you need to read this book first. I'm like, oh my goodness. And I have, I'm not a great reader. And so I wish I would have had, I wish I, wish I would have had the, the summary before going in. Uh, but I, I, I love it. it. Any other, like I, I also read uh, The Law and the Creature from Jekyll Island. Is there any other key like concepts that you like, like, because I love that you can take a book and break that down. Um, is there any other ones that are like you think would be really beneficial for well, my audience to? Yeah, I mean, uh, each of the books that we do is based on like a classic text, and so, like you noted, that one's you know based on Atlas Shrugged. Uh, we talked about Eye Pencil. We talked about the Law, the Creature from Jekyll Island, all about the Fed. Uh, we've got one which is the Tuttle Twins and the Food Truck Fiasco, which is based on Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, that. which is a, a, a classic. We've got the Tuttle Twins and the Road to Serfdom, uh, based on the Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek, uh, except we call ours, his is Serfdom with a S-E, uh, like slavery, basically. And we do a little twist on it. And ours is Serfdom, S-U, like surf at a beach, because it's a beach resort where all these economic problems start to happen. And so they see you know, what the Road to Serfdom actually does in terms of these economic problems. And so that was a really fun one. 
you know, you mentioned you were homeschooled. Uh, this is less relevant to your audience, but our previous to last book was based on John Taylor Gatto, which is a very well-known uh, guy in homeschooling communities called The Tuttle Twins and the Education Vacation, talking mm-hmm. about all the problems in compulsory education and uh, really trying to give, you know, kids a leg up and in, in being more curious about their world and having more opportunities to pursue the intellectual uh, curiosities that they themselves have rather than imprinting this societal template on them and saying, you know, we, the curriculum committee have determined what all children need to learn and they need to all be the same and learn the same things. And so um, I was not homeschooled, but we do homeschool our children because of some of these things that we've uh, learned along the way and seen that there are problems with. So uh, our most recent book just came out very recently based on Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian economist, a very uh, renowned economist. Uh, His magnum opus is Human Action, uh, which is amazing, though incredibly difficult to get through. Uh, Put in a plug here for Bob Murphy, who is a big uh, proponent of the infinite banking concept. He wrote a book called Choice, which is basically the Reader's Digest version of Ludwig von Mises' Human Action. And so uh, we took those books and the concepts that they teach, praxeology, right? Why do humans act the way, do, the way they do? And in our latest book, it's in the setting of a children's entrepreneur market, kind of like a farmer's market run entirely by the kids with these little kid businesses. And the Tuttle Twins see and experience some of the problems in the market that can come from people making good choices and bad choices. Some are risky businesses. Some are getting subsidized by their parents. Some are getting bailed out, right? And, and so some of these little uh, market dynamics that you see in the real world on a broader scale, but we put it in this context of this little kid's farmer's market. Um, and we, we apply kind of those praxeological analyses uh, that, that Ludwig von Mises points us to, to try and understand that people are rational creatures and they're making all these decisions in pursuit of the ends that they desire. You may disagree with it. You may not understand it but people are pursuing their own interests. And so we have to understand that, uh, like we said earlier, you can't centrally plan all this stuff and you can't control everything. People need to be free to act and pursue those desires that they want and then the rest will take care of itself. So that book just came out recently as a very fun economic one. And I, I'm a huge fan and I will definitely plug your, your books. If you go to tuttletwins.com, make sure to just buy all the books. I'm sure we'll get, we'll get a link from you. And um, I, I'm whether you're kids or whether you need to read them, I honestly think every single person that listens to this podcast should read this, read these books, because what you do is you essentially take a complex, some, sometimes a complex like idea mm-hmm. or, or not a complex idea, but something that you'd have to read a thousand pages to, sure. to understand and break it down in, in a way where your, your kid can understand. And I mean, there's a reason Donald Trump is president. He, he speaks to a, a what is it? A fourth grade yeah. uh, level. And, and I think there's, there's benefits to that. One of my questions that I had when I was reading this is I'm like, okay, there's so many things in my head as it relates to how money works. Like for instance, I want a book that like this, that talks about opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe opportunity cost is one of the most profound functions of, of how you think about money in the context of time. And like every decision you make has a consequence, not just today, potentially a lack of control, but a time value of money, future. Yep. Yep. And, there's, and there's multiple more. Like I would love to do what you're doing on like all the books that I've read and really help kids 
understand how money works. How do you go through the process of making something complex, making it simple? And if you had to give me any recommendations, like where should I even start? Because I will Mm. say this, my second book could be How Not to Write a Book by Caleb Williams. (laughs) It was such a miserable experience, mainly because I'm not an author, I'm not a writer, but I've seen the power of just having one book out there. I've seen the power of, of the leverage of having that message out sure. and having people read it. And so I'm trying to figure out how to make, uh, take a, a, a principle that I know and make it simple. And I want to know your process that you sure. went through in doing this. Well, first I'll say that the recent book that I mentioned, uh, ours is called The Tuttle Twins and the Messed Up Market, uh, which as you pointed out, you can find at tuttletwins.com. One of the other ideas that we talk about in the book, uh, you'll be happy to know, I guess, is opportunity cost. Um, and so we mention it. It's a defined term in the book. We share examples and, and it's kind of an undercurrent throughout the whole story. And so I agree with I you. It. That's such a fundamental topic. And, and I should also point out that like, you know, as, as, so these books are typically like 60 pages or so. They're fully illustrated. They've got a fun little story. They're introducing a bunch of terms. And then in the back, there's a little glossary so mom or dad can you know, better understand the defined term, some discussion questions. But in reality, my goal with these books is not necessarily to be a textbook for the child, um, but more to spark conversations. And what you said earlier is actually very true, and it was not planned. That is, we, we started do, uh, making children's books. That's, that's kind of was our goal, our project. And along the way, probably after like the second or third book, we started to really notice that we were getting all this feedback from parents saying, holy cow, I learned so much in that book myself. I never learned that in school right? Or like, no one ever explained it to me that way. Now I totally get it. And so ever since then, for years, we've had this consistent uh, feedback from the parents who love this opportunity to sit down with their kids, right? Have this Mm -hmm. like shared bonding moment, reading about important ideas. The kids are learning. They're liking the story. They're following along. But the parents are also learning too. And they can kind of engage in this conversation with their kids when they're at the grocery store next and be like, oh, hey, look, spontaneous order, like potato chips everywhere. There's no potato chip you know, president, and they can start to apply those lessons that they learn together as a family, which is so uh, critical. So I'm not trying to, I, I don't have any delusions that every kid is going to understand opportunity cost after reading the latest book and be able to observe it in the real world in every scenario. It's more just to plant those seeds so that as they get older and as their parents bring stuff up to them, they have that recollection, that familiarity that they can rely back onto and say, oh yeah, no, it's just like we read about in the book and suddenly it clicks. Whereas had a, a parent tried to just bring that up on their own, and introduce it, you know, just go right over that kid's head. So it's more about planting these intellectual seeds that we can harvest later on. You asked about writing, and and this is what's uh, odd for me. So I've, I've written 21 books total, and mm-hmm. um, there are 11 in this children's series that we've done. I've written a bunch of books for adults, and the kids' books are harder, right? Because when I'm talking to adults, I feel like I can just kind of explain it at my level, and it can just kind of stream out of me, and yeah, you edit it and whatever, but I can just kind of talk. With the kids' books, like you say, you got to take these complex ideas and boil them down to kind of their mm-hmm. essence, find a way you know, to make them relevant. And, and that's easier said than done. I will say <clears throat> that I've become a big believer in the power of story. Mm. Uh, we use this a lot in our think tank when we're trying to persuade voters, for example. We're always trying to find the story that can emotionally convey uh, the, the principle and connect with the audience. And then I think that is the magic of these kids' books. If I were to give a kid a little infinite banking concept textbook, right? You know, you'd bore them to tears. 
But if you put in uh, put it in a in the context of story, uh, where they can kind of see the example play out, their barriers come down. They're not resisting learning. It's just a fun story. There's the the neuroscience behind story is actually really fascinating. I've read several books on this over the past few years, um, talking about how the human brain is wired for story. There's actually a book I recommend for authors called Wired for Story. Hmm. And it gets into this, how our brains are basically, they, they crave the, the, the constant dopamine drip of, of all the different elements of story. And so good authors can leverage that to basically addict their readers. I mean, that's essentially what you're doing is you're satisfying an addiction that all humans have for story. It's just wired into the way we think and the way we operate. And so um, I think that any author who um, even like, so my adult books are all nonfiction. I, I'm, I actually am not a very good uh, fiction writer apart from these kid, kid books where I've kind of figured out that thing. But like for broader uh, uh, communities and, and you know, adults, I, I'm a nonfiction writer. I like just explaining the way things work and the way things ought to be. And yet even uh, like I'm working on another book right now for adults. And I found that as I'm explaining it, the more I get into it, I realize I need a story. I, I need an, ex- even if it's in a nonfiction book and I just need an example to point people to, to make this principle more relatable, uh, it, it just makes them internalize the issue way more than just explain, explain, explain. And so I think um, as, as I look at my, my own books that I'm working on right now, um, that is the best advice I can give is just to cling as much to story as possible because it is the easiest and most effective way to convey to people the ideas that we're trying to teach. If we sit them down classroom style and just drill these things into their head, it doesn't work. But if we invite them into a story, think about when you go watch a movie, it's the suspension mm-hmm. of disbelief is the term, right? You, mm-hmm. you, everything else fades away. You, don't, you forget you're sitting in a theater. You're drawn into that movie. And for the next two hours, you're just along for the ride. And, and that is the power of narrative. It's the power of story. And so it's something that I'm trying to figure out how can we leverage this more for topics like infinite banking concept, for economics, for politics, for you know, freedom, for whatever our topics are? How can we leverage story more? I think it's something that very powerful that we could all stand to, to use a little bit more. Do you know Dr. Tim Elmore with the Habitudes? I don't, know. Okay. I, I'm going to connect you guys. Um, Dr. Tim Elmore, I actually got introduced to his work. He, he learned from John Maxwell and then came and started his own company called Habitudes and his whole idea is healthy habits and, and great, you know, ad attitudes and what his whole books are just a, a word, a picture. And then like a one to two, you know, page story that goes along that uh, shares that principle cool. and then discussion and his whole thing. I mean, it's, you guys would get along so well because his whole thing is the schools, like the top down model, like is, is not working. Right. And, and I got that same example. So in, in other words, you take a principle and then you say, what kind of story, like, how can I share this in story format? And then what makes this so hard, I can imagine is you have to, you have to really decide what parts to Mm-hmm. share and mm-hmm. and cut out 97% yep. of what you want to put in there yep. which is always tricky. Are you are you a fan of infinite banking? Yeah, you know, I uh I I have all the books. Uh I have several uh supporters who are also supporters of that. I don't practice it myself. I've never dove into the deep end, but I am familiar with it. The books are all literally sitting on my conference room table right now that I still need to finish going through. Um, it's something that I'm very intrigued by, but I've not yet taken the the plunge quite yet. So I'm curious because you're 
super, super knowledgeable. What, when you think of better wealth, number one, how do you, how do you define better wealth in your life? And then what are you doing as a family in teaching your kids? And what are you doing personally as it relates to where we are in the economy and how you're growing your wealth? Um, yeah. I, I'm super curious to hear this. So um, as I think of the term better wealth and what that means for me, I approach it from a holistic perspective. Um, or try to at least. It, it's it's easy to look at your bank account and think, you know, how much money do I have? But I consider myself wealthy if I have, you know, a, a healthy family. I have uh, diversified income streams. I have free time and and meaningful enriching opportunities that make me uh, a a wealthy person in the things that matter in life. Um, mm. I read good books. I'm focusing on self improvement. <clears throat> um. I've got contingency plans. You know, I've got a, a savings cushion so that I can weather out the storms. I am prepared. You know, I have several stacks of toilet paper in my basement. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't need to frantically run to the grocery store because there's a shortage on toilet paper right now uh, because of coronavirus. You know, I, I, I come from the perspective that those who are prepared don't fear. And I think when we fear, when we are worried, we are more easily controlled. I think the historical record is very clear on that. Um, I actually wrote a book called Feardom, uh, all about the historical examples of how politicians and the media and so forth can exploit people when they're afraid. And so why we need to not be afraid, why we need to prepare, why we need to make sound choices so that we are not so that we can act rather than being acted upon, right? We can kind of control our behavior rather than being controlled. And so to me, wealth is, is kind of this broader view because, you know, in an apocalypse, for example, uh, you can have a lot of money in your you know, bank account or you can have a lot of money, period. But if the economy is deteriorating and you don't have any assets outside of that, or if you don't feel prepared as a person to withstand economic storms and the turmoil that can cause in your marriage, in your family, in your church community or whatever... Um, I think that still poses a lot of problems. So to me, it's broader than money. And it's mm. something that we as a family try and talk about and think about that like, what should we be doing better as a family? Yeah, dad is focused on different streams of income and making sure that we're taken care of. But apart from that, what do we need to be doing as a family so that we are solid, so that we can help others, right? Because to me, a big part of being wealthy is, is uh, as much as I love Atlas Shrugged and Ayn Rand, Right. I don't think selfishness is necessarily a virtue. I get where she's coming from. Yeah. I want to be a resource to others in an yeah. apocalypse. I want to have enough toilet paper so that I can share with those in need rather than me being the one to have to beg, you know, for others' charity. And so if I'm prepared, if I'm wealthy in the broader sense, I can be a resource to help others through their own turmoil and be a blessing to other people's lives rather than me depending on others' charity or having to beg or having to be worried. And so to me, I really like to, I, I fail miserably at it. By no means am I perfect. But the, the um, direction that we try and drive toward as a family is this broader notion of what need we be doing um, in all the facets, facets of our life so that we are prepared, so that we're confident, so that we're successful. And to the end of not only having a good family and, and being able to thrive, but so that we can be a positive resource to help those around us. I think that was one of the best answers I've ever got on this podcast. I love how you talked about holistic perspective. And one of the things that we do at Better Wealth is this idea of better wealth is living a more intentional life now and in the future. And the word intentional is really, really key because if your health isn't right, if you, have an, if you don't have a great marriage, kids don't talk to you, 
money is very, very, very small on the list of things that actually matter. And money in a bank account is money in a bank account. When the world's ending, you have <laughs> like now, like right. uh, how much is toilet paper worth to me right now if you're yeah, out? Gold. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I love that, man. And uh, love the mission that you're on. Uh, one of the questions that we end um, all of our interviews with is what I call the legacy question, which I'm I'm really curious to hear how you answer this. And it goes like this. If this was your last day on earth, you like know this for a fact and you're with the fam- your family and the people that you love the most, what would you make sure to instill to your children in that last conversation? Mm. Out of all the things, I mean, you have, you have so many things. So obviously, you would say, read my books. But <laughs> what would you, if you only had that one conversation and you couldn't give them your books, mm. what, would you, what would you share with them? Um, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name. He was like a Harvard professor or something. And it's, I think it's called The Last Lecture. There's a gentleman who was uh, sick and, and on his deathbed, basically. And uh, I think it was Harvard, but it might have been a different school. So he gave this last lecture where he was basically answering your question, but to a broader community. And a very powerful, just basically motivational life stuff, focus on the things that matter and so forth. And I think they made a book out of it. And the reason why I'm thinking about that is that if it were my last day, what I would do is I would not have a conversation. I would actually write it down or record a video. I would do something to preserve the information because memory fades, right? And you know, if I just have a conversation, my kid in 10 years may look back and remember fondly that conversation and remember vaguely what we talked about. But there is power in preserving right, the communication. And so I would write a letter um, probably, or or do a video where I could speak directly to my children, my grandchildren, and so forth. And I think the message I would share is uh, focus on first things first. It, it's so easily to get distracted as a society in the pursuit of money, right? The pursuit of fame, pride, and so forth. Um, but I, I love the word that you chose: intentionality, right? Be be focused on the things that matter, and make sure whether it's every week. Every month, every day, you know, New Year's resolutions, once a year, not enough, right? You got to always be repivoting. I, I love the, the idea of, of a pilot who's traveling to a destination. It's never in a perfect line. They're constantly having to make course corrections, very minor ones along the way, right? Because the wind blows a certain way or trying to avoid a little cloud or a little pocket of turbulence. And so getting to your final destination is not just a straight line. It's, it's a constant number of ongoing course corrections that you have to make. So you have to be focused. If the pilot goes mm-hmm. to sleep, you're going to veer way off your uh, trajectory. Um, you're not going to reach your destination, certainly not the amount of time uh, that you would have. And so I think those course corrections are important that if we're focusing on first things first, we're going to be constantly reevaluating the things in our life that we need to be correcting and making those minor corrections, apologizing to someone, doing a little bit better in this, doing the little things that add up to the big things. And you know, in my short uh, 38 years of life, you know, I, I've seen the, the people living the intentional lives, the people having a meaningful impact on others and the world around them. Uh, they are the ones focusing on those small things, sending a thank you card, yeah. right? Take, taking time to write a simple note that has a lasting impact. I just did this yesterday for a few people and I'm like, yeah, okay, this, this is good. I want to turn this into a habit. I want to say thank you more to people. Um, and so focus on first things first write it down, share that message, uh, because I think there's power in preserving that communication. And I, know I would want my family to always be able to look back to that, that message and rather than having it fade away. I actually have uh, a recording that I'm going to be doing later this week on why I think everyone should do annual 
obituary videos. Mm, wow. <laughs> and and it, as a, and just like let's flesh this out for a second. Like think about think about that question that I asked you and think about the impact that that would have if people actually did that. And I saw one of my best friends who's like a second father to me pass away. Mm. And he he did this. We have him on video talking about his life, talking about what he wants his kid like and it was so impactful, man. And it's really changed the way that I viewed just this this answer and it goes very much uh, selfishly, yeah. I'm, I'm happy that a lot of this stuff is documented um, because it, we live in a, an amazing, amazing time. And so I love love your answer and I, I love your perspective and how intentional you're. I also 100% agree with you as, as it relates to uh, gratitude. I don't, think, I don't think it should be forced on us, but I think you will live a happy, abundant, amazing life if you can give of yourself. It's just something that I've seen in my life is I'm a a happier, better, more effective person when I show gratitude, when I give versus uh, just asking the question, what, what can I get? And so thank you for showing up powerfully and, and doing so much. What is the best way for people to contact you, connect with your mission? Obviously, please, if you're listening to this, it would mean the world to me if you went and supported Connor and, and really your bigger mission, which is way bigger than yourself, got your books and like this like I come from a, a pretty big homeschool community, by the way, like every single person that homeschools their kids should get this book. And whether you homeschool or not, I'm just, that's probably a big audience of yours. It is a big audience. Yeah. The homeschoolers love these books. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tuttletwins.com, as you said, is where you can find those. Um, uh, my website is connorboyack.com that has a little bit of information about me. Or if you just Google Connor Boyack, you'll You'll find plenty of stuff I'm very easy to find online. And to any of your listeners who'd love to connect, I'd, I'd love to connect back. So feel free to reach out. Connor, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.